Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 396. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 396 you're listening to. My guest today is Los Angeles-based mastering engineer Nick Townsend, who's worked with Dr. Dre, Paramore, Bad Brains, Doja Cat, and many others. And it just so happens he works for Infrasonic Sound, which, as you may know, if you listen to the show for any length of time, I've interviewed many of the people that work over at Infrasonic, including uh, Pete Lyman, Dave Gardner, Piper Payne, Dan Bacigalupi. So we're going to add Nick to that list of people. Uh, we're going to talk all about his fascination with cutting vinyl or cutting lacquers, I guess you would say, and uh, everything mastering in his journey. So Nick Townsend coming up here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about whether or not you need to get an audio degree. So I'm going to cut to the chase here right at the beginning and then discuss. I think the question of whether or not you need to go to audio school all depends on you and your learning style. Some people prefer to get right into it and get to work and figure it out from there. While some people need some more structure and they like a little more guidance. That's really it. At the end of the day, if you need somebody to walk you through it, then audio school might be your jam. However, if you are a doer and you wanna just get your feet wet, you might wanna just jump right in in a number of ways to get going. Okay, so we got that out of the way. Those are your two scenarios. Maybe there's more, but I'm just gonna simplify it and just say, there's those two. If you jump in on your own, let's start with that. What's the best way to do that? Let's split that off into two, two routes. You can go get an internship at a studio if there is that opportunity where you live. Those opportunities seem to be few and far between these days, but it's still possible if you're in a major city like Los Angeles or Nashville, I would say that your odds are probably better than if you're in Tucson or Albuquerque or, or somewhere in Michigan. Because in general, there are more studios in those primary markets. But hey, it doesn't hurt to call around and ask who's willing to give you an internship or at least let you be a runner at the studio. That's one way to do it. You get your foot in the door and you work your way up the ladder. The other way to do it is to just buy the gear and start recording people. Find local bands find out where you can record them. You can maybe put together a portable setup and go to the rehearsal space, obviously. And we all know you don't need that much to do that, right? You can get a very simple interface, whether it's two channel, eight channel, whatever, uh, get yourself a laptop and a DAW, some speakers, a headphone and some microphones. And then obviously, yes, there's gonna be the other incidentals, mic stands, et cetera, et cetera, mic cables. That's one way to do it and you know, the benefits of doing that are it quickly teaches you about recording and you immediately figure out what works and what doesn't. And you can complement your real world experience with all kinds of YouTube videos and paid courses. There is so much content out there. It's insane. I wish all of that existed when I started, but it didn't. So moving on, 
the benefits of just digging in are immense because you learn at a very rapid pace about not just audio, but about business and people, how to work with people. And you are going to make some colossal mistakes. You're going to make some awful sounding stuff. You're going to piss a lot of people off. Hopefully you won't piss too many people off, but you are going to really get, get familiar very quickly. Now, if you're going to school, that's a different story. You hopefully can choose a school that is affordable, is not going to put you in a great amount of debt. And if you have a great teacher, they can get you through the basics. You may not get all the great hands-on stuff that you would if you were to dive in, but you are going to get a great thorough education on the basics, hopefully signal flow, and you might get some opportunities here and there to record some things, but not as much as if you dig in. At the end of the day, you need to ask yourself, what kind of person am I when it comes to learning? What learning style suits me best? And that is the central point of how you make your decision. If you have opinions about this, I'd love to hear it. Obviously, this just scratches the surface and is a broad overview, but send me an email, matt at workingclassaudio.com and let me know what you think. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Let's get to it. Nick Townsend here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. Much ground to cover. So let's just go right to the beginning. Where did you grow up? I grew up in West Covina, California. It's kind of a, I just tell people LA because whenever I say West Covina, they're like, where the hell's that? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's a San Gabriel Valley. So it's about 20, 30 minutes east of LA, depending on traffic. So growing up with traffic has been kind of a regular part of life. Oh man, yeah. It's sad to think about it, but I'll probably spend a third of my life sitting in traffic living here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's sad. But yeah, it is the reality of, of living in, in California, north or south. Yeah. Well, tell me about when you're growing up, do you have any, any siblings? Yeah. So growing up, I was born in 88. And then growing up, I had a brother about two or three years younger than me. Mm-hmm. Later on, my parents got divorced and my mom got remarried and then she had two more kids. So they're about 10 years apart from me. Okay. Growing up in your household, what was the role that music played or technology or anything of that sort? Music is interesting. It's really important because I was just growing up. We had MTV on, VH1 on all the time. My dad was super into rock and roll and punk rock. And then I just kind of had it on all the time. So my dad was musical. He sang in show choir when he was in high school. Mm-hmm. So he was more of a singer. So anytime we drove anywhere, it was always like him singing along to stuff and air drumming on the on the uh, steering wheel. So <laughs> I grew up with it. It was important. My grandmother also taught music in high school. She was a teacher and a principal in Bassett, which is for anyone who lives out here, they, they know it's like sort of by like El Monte, La Ponte area, a little bit of a rougher neighborhood. She taught choir and something else. I can't quite remember. It's so long ago. But she was real musical, loved music, wanted me to take piano lessons, tried to buy me a banjo. <laughs> I was like, I just want an electric guitar, Grandma. Oh, my gosh. And then my uncle, growing up on my mom's side, he played guitar a lot. He was kind of your typical stoner rock uncle who just smoked a ton of weed in his bedroom and plays guitar. Yeah. So I had him growing up really 
keeping the the flames sparked for me. Like anytime I wanted to play guitar, he'd take the time to show me how to play whatever riff I wanted to learn how to play. And Mm. that's what really got me started, like playing music and being interested in how to make my own music. What about technology and or the production of records or the awareness of the recording process? That came later. So I, I started playing guitar when I was about 10 or 11 and very quickly realized that there are no good drummers or it's very hard to come by a good drummer. So I kind of swapped over to drums. My uncle bought my brother a drum set and my brother was living with my mom in a trailer home and drums inside of a trailer home don't really work out that great. So we ended up moving the drums to my grandmother's house in West Covina that I was living at. And I just would not stop playing drums and got to the point where this is going to be a long story, but I'll eventually get to your question. You go, man. <laughs> I'm, I'm here for you. <laughs> but basically, I, I, I just played drums like nonstop. I, I loved punk rock. I was really getting into it, trying to start bands. And eventually I did start a band. And we ended up going into a recording studio eventually. Our the guitar player's parents volunteered to pay for us to go into the studio for a day. So that's when I first, like my first experience seeing any of that stuff happen. I was like totally blown away. Could not, I was like, you're putting microphones on all my drums and my, like all I've ever heard is my drums blaring in the garage with guitar amps blasting behind me. And now I'm sitting in front of speakers, hearing my drums be played back through monitors and listening to myself play. And it was just sort of like a, just blew my mind at the time. And that's what really like started it. Mm-hmm. And then I just kept playing in bands, playing in bands, playing in bands, recording with bands and going to bigger and bigger studios, progressively stepping up every time to the point where it's like, now we're in a multi-room facility with a two-inch studer tape machine that we're recording direct to tape and mixing back from tape. And I was like, this is it. This, I, I don't know. Like I'm, I'm stuck. I, I caught the bug. So I, I saved up enough money and I bought my own, my first rig and I started recording my own demos in my garage. Actually, sorry, that came after my parents bought me a, a digital Tascam DPO2 eight track. So hmm. I started recording on that first and then I, and then I was like, well, I need more channels than two channels. So I'm going to get a mixing board and I'm going to mix everything down on the, on the board and running out two channels to the eight track and then get more control over my drum sounds that way. And then saved up enough money and got my own computer and started recording in my garage. And then it got to the point where touring and, you know, my first job was, a as a, as a screen printer. So I would make t-shirts and, and I actually managed a big screen printing shop out here for a while that made all the stuff for Tilly's. And it was just so mind numbingly boring and just hot (laughs) and horrific. And I hated it. I was like, I need to do something where I could sit down in air conditioning and like just not destroy my body. So I quit that job and uh, went to school over here by my house. There's a good recording school at a community college called Citrus College and they have a good little recording program there where they have two like really beautiful SSL rooms and they actually do a really a really great two-year block program there that I I started going to 
while I was recording bands. And then that sort of got me into the like, okay, well now get certified as an audio engineer, go through all the hoops. And I was on my, on my way looking for a gig. And it just so happened that I had finished a record for my band and we mixed it in my garage and we had enough of a budget from the small label we were on to go and get it mastered. And then that led me to Infrasonic. And then by going to Infrasonic, me and Pete just instantly hit it off because we're like punk rock kids right? that skate. And we're talking about Pete Lyman, for those that don't know, former WCA guest, link will be in the show notes to Pete's episode. But that was a time when Pete was still in California before he had moved to Tennessee. Yeah, we were we were in the facility that was above Vintage King on Sunset. I've been there. Yeah. Yeah. So I walked into that sort of just trying to shove my foot into any door I could get it into. And I think I punished him pretty good. <laughs> but it didn't scare him. So that was good. I, and then he showed me the lathe and I was just like, can I cuss on this? Of course. Say whatever you want. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck is that thing? <laughs> and uh blew me away. I, I, I could not wrap my head around the fact that, you know, I had made records before this. That whole story leading up to this point, I had made probably about a dozen vinyl records with my bands, just recording, being on small labels, going on tour, doing the whole thing. And I never was able to get anybody on the phone to talk to them about like how that mastering process went. Still at this point, I had no clue what mastering was. I was like, when they make it louder, they make sure that it's not going to get screwed up when it goes to vinyl, which was the format that my bands cared about because we were like punk rock kids Mm -hmm. and vinyl records were still sort of an underground thing at the time back in 2007, 2008. So seeing it in action at Pete's place was just like, whoa, what the hell is that? I have like a whole mechanical side of my brain that being a drummer and like working on machinery, like screen printing presses and like being creative, like using tools to create things was like this thing sort of tickled everything. It was like, oh, I'm using a tool, a big ass piece of machinery that's going to make music, but I can also use analog gear to make music sound good and sit in front of awesome speakers all day and listen to a bazillion different genres of music and nothing ever gets boring. Sign me up. Let's do this. Let's come back to that that mechanical thing here in a bit. But I do want to step back a bit further to something you said earlier that caught my attention about community college. Yeah. And tell me if you disagree or agree. Community college is kind of an often overlooked part of the recording schooling process, if you will. Most people look to the Full Sales and Blackbird Academy and the more well-known places. But they often overlook the fact that there's probably a local community college teacher, professor who can instruct them for a lot less money and they could still get a great education and get the fundamentals without having to do a deep dive or a big move. Would you agree with that? What was your experience in community college? Yeah, I think I have a couple things to say on that. Like community college to me is what you make it. You can have great teachers and if you know they're great teachers and you pay attention and you're driven yourself, you're already doing half of the work yourself by being in bands or recording or being really interested in the process and researching. Like I think it's just as good 
of a step forward in your career path is going to, you know, a full sale or SAE or paying a bunch of money. Like the reason I went there was legitimately just because I don't have money. My grandma was going to pay and help me go through college and I was going to be unemployed and go through the whole thing. And I noticed I had great teachers. It was a great facility. And when I got out of that course, the interesting thing to me is working at Infrasonic and being that close to Vintage King, we'd have a lot of SAE and Los Angeles recording school people that would be coming in and doing things. And a lot of times I would strike up conversations and they would be like, what are you talking about? What do you mean? Like, this is how you signal flow. It's like, you, this is how you trace things back to get to the problem. And a lot of times I would find that, that a lot of these kids wouldn't have some of these basic fundamentals. I think you can get just as much out of a community college with a program like the one I went through as you could any of these big schools. Some of the big schools do offer some cool stuff like more of the electronics side of things where you can start to dig in and and understand how to read schematics and do that. But I mean, nowadays with YouTube, I feel like if you YouTube stuff and you're driven and you try to go after some of the information you're looking for and then you just pair that up with a great course at a community college with a good facility, like you're you're golden. Yeah, and you usually can find teachers that they've been at it for a long time. They really have a passion for it. Not to say that they don't at these other places, but it's just an overlooked gem, I think, that we tend to forget about and and not think about too much because it's not very publicized. Yeah, I agree 100%. At my college, it was interesting because we had awesome teachers. And then one of them was, we had a music business class that was ran by John Boylan who was the vice president of Epic Records and signed like Boston, like, (laughs) you know, no big deal. And you would get some of these really cool people coming into those courses. These are people who worked in the industry. They legitimately were in the trenches like I am every day working on records. And then as they tapered off their career, they wanted to do something fun and give back. And that's a lot of times you'll find that type of person, that type of an engineer and a teacher at these facilities. So I think it's a great option. Yeah. Let's talk about your mechanical brain. All right. That's fascinating. First off, where do you think that comes from? What what in your childhood do you think got you to that point? Or do you think you just had an aptitude for it from the beginning? It's hard to say. I mean, I think I just was into it from the, the beginning. Like I played with Legos a lot. Hmm. And I think that really like got me into being like creative and building. I've always had a great imagination. So I love little challenges and like using tools to overcome those challenges or to create something or build something. Or, I mean, I used to be a recording engineer before becoming a mastering engineer. I, I recorded in mixed bands and there was nothing I loved more than, you know, I thought, I thought that was my career. I was like, I'm going to go, I'm going to be a runner at Westlake. I'm going to work at East West, whatever. I'm just going to eat shit for the next year or two of my life. And hopefully someone realizes that I can do cool stuff and and I'm driven enough to give me a a gig that's more solid. But as soon as I found mastering and I was like, oh, there's the tool right there. I'm like, yeah, I can use tools and microscopes and like cut an actual physical groove that plays back music. And yeah, I I think I've always sort of been into it. I mean, from Legos to drumming to recording, I'm also a fisherman. This is actually, by the way, funny side note the first audio related podcast I've ever been on. So <laughs> I've been on, I've been on fishing podcasts. No problem. Really? But, yeah. 
What do you think is the common thing amongst your interests? Man, that is a good question. They're all expensive. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Even fishing? (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah. Fishing gets real. I mean, think about it. If you really want to fish and you get a boat, boat stands for like... There's an acronym there. Yeah. Yeah. It's something. Buy another thousand or borrow another thousand dollars. I don't know. (laughs) Whatever. Someone will will know what I'm talking about. Well, there's a a patience and a... um, not a solitude, but there's there's something about fishing that I could see relates directly to mastering. Yeah, I, I use these analogies a lot. Like I, I love analogies. Anyone who knows me would know that. <laughs> I, I just mm. speak in these silly analogies all the time. But realistically, honestly, with fishing and mastering, you have a toolbox. Like I have a toolbox. It's in my desk. I have EQs, compressors, different sorts of gear that I go to for specific reasons. And it's because I'm reading the music and what it needs. So I'm hearing the music back. I'm like, okay, I know the environment that I'm in. I'm very comfortable with this. I know what gear I need to use in order to get to achieve the goal that I want. And that's what I do. And I just work really hard and relentlessly on trying to get the music to where I want it. And the same goes with bass fishing, for instance, what I do. I'm going out. I'm reading the weather. I'm reading what time of year it is, the water temperature. I'm picking different colors of baits and different lures depending on what the food in the lake is for the bass. So like if it's a a lake that has a lot of trout in it where the bass are keying in on the trout, then I'll, I'll have a trout lure or something colored like it. If it's another lake that has mostly crawdad or some other type of forage for the fish, then I'll use that kind of a tool. And my end goal there is just catch a 10 pound bass. Like just do what I can, but it's it's very similar in the way that mm. my brain functions. I'm I'm going to specific things for a reason to achieve a specific goal, and it's sort of what I do with everything. Like I, I go off roading, I go fishing, I play music. I, I have a goal in mind out there that I'm trying to achieve, and I'm just using everything in my toolbox for that specific thing to get there. You're trying to catch the sonic fish. Yeah. As, as it were. I love it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you you do spend a fair amount of time outdoors, I take it. Yeah. I mean, well, when you sit inside of a studio as much as I do, as much as we all do, you got to balance that. I think that's probably why I'm out so much. On the weekends, anytime I can get away from the studio, I'm either out fishing or four buying or camping or hiking or doing something, even just barbecuing in my backyard or something like that. I I got to get that vitamin D when I can get it. You know what I mean? Right. So. right. Do you ride motorcycles? <laughs> no. That is the one thing I was never really good at as a kid. I rode 50s. And I mean, it's pretty funny. For for California, I grew up kind of rednecky. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we had like a dirt bike track in one of my friend's backyards. And we would jump on the 50s and zoom around the backyard. And that was cool when I was a kid and easy because I didn't have to shift. But then... As soon as I got on the bigger bikes and had to start learning how to use the clutch and shift, you know, I'd get really good and really confident for a minute and then I'd forget. <laughs> and then <laughs> next thing I know, I'm my my bike is super manning away from me and I'm getting dragged across the floor. <laughs> With some of your outdoor activities, do you find that you're in situations where your ears could be compromised? Yeah, I found that most of the time it's like if I'm in a boat, a lot of them have big, big ass diesel engines in them. So if you're sleeping overnight in a boat 
I'll bring earplugs everywhere I go just in case. And then I do like to go clay shooting also. So what I'll do there is, is I, I have earplugs and over ear protection and I never take it off while I'm at the range or doing anything, any outdoorsy type of activity that has any sort of loud stuff happening. I'm, I'm fully ready. Earplugs in the car all the time. Yeah. Do they call that skeet shooting still? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sort of a beginner at it. I'm just getting back into it. And it's like trap and skeet are two different things. And one of them is like way more technical and hard. Mm-hmm. And the other one is more like just shooting clays that shoot straight away from you. It's kind of like target practice. The other one's more like, oh man, I'm actually trying to get good at shooting birds or something. Right. <laughs> I'm not fully well-versed on that stuff, but I enjoy doing it. It's like getting into this, just a a focused state of mind with everything I do, like fishing, shooting, off-roading. You're picking a line that's like, you're really trying to not destroy your $40,000 truck. Right. (laughs) So you got it. It forces you to just zone it. Everything goes away and you're fully focused on the task at hand. My uncle was a championship skeet shooter. That's why I'm asking. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. Well, so back to uh, mastering. You know, you're working with Pete, right? And yeah. how did you become part of the Infrasonic team or did you, did you start mastering on your own before that? No, I started mastering at Infrasonic. So it's kind of a funny story. When I went there, me and Pete hit it off and that night at Vintage King, they were having a party. And so Pete invited me back. He's like, Hey, if you're looking for an internship, come back by tonight. We're having a party. Be cool to introduce you to some people. So I was like, awesome, I'm there. So I drove back home, got ready, came right back out, saw Pete at the Vintage King party with Ivana Manley. And I walk up, I'm like, hey. He's like, hey, dude, good to see you. 
I'm going to eat dinner with Havana. I'll see you later. And then he peels out. And I'm like, I thought we were going to hang out. I thought we were going to hang out. Shit. <laughs> Pete. Yeah. I was like, okay, well, I guess I'll just hang out. I mean, there's other people who are into what I'm into here that I could talk to and, and there's free drinks. So what more could you ask for? Yeah, I'm good. So I hung out as the night progressed. I started to meet some of the people who were working the drinks and helping out around Vintage King. Then they started saying stuff like, oh, you're the new intern. I was like, am I? No one's explained this to me. I don't know how this works. And so I just hung out. And one of the things they taught me in school specifically was like, you know, you just stay, you're the first one there, you're the last one to leave. So I just took that to heart and I hung out and started helping everybody clean up after the party. Mm-hmm. And then Pete showed up. He's like, what are you doing here? It's like, I don't know. I'm, apparently I'm the new intern. And he's like, all right, give me a call on Wednesday. So I called him that next Wednesday and came in and did just a quick little interview. And then they started having me work that week in the vinyl cutting room. I started started off three days a week just watching, just seeing what what it took to cut a record and, and what the process was. And so that's all I did. I just sat on my hands for like three months. That's a good thing to do, especially when it, when it comes to cutting vinyl, right? Oh, yeah. But you, to put it into perspective, you had recording experience prior to this, not only as a player, but as an engineer, because you were not only playing on your records, you are also recording your records. Were you recording other people's records? Oh, yeah. Okay. All my friends, word of mouth, I never really advertised it, but then people started hearing things I was recording for my own band, and then that progressed into other people wanting me to record their bands. So yeah, I was, uh, I was doing a bunch. So Pete has you sitting down and you're observing the process for you. What's the goal there? Are you just trying to absorb as much about the process as you can? Yeah, it's, I'm this way. And I feel like a lot of people are this way. I learned by repetition I mean, everybody's got to screw something up. Like there's no way you're going to be 100% perfect all the time. So I think just by watching and absorbing that repetition and the process over and over and over again, it sets you up to be less likely to break something that's worth $15,000. So that was the main goal is, you know, those cutter heads on, on lathes are really expensive, hard to come by, very few and far between. So I think it was realistically, it was understanding that I had an ear and it was more like, okay, well, here's how we do this. And this, these are the fail safes we have in place to make sure that things don't get broken. At what point did you make your first attempt at cutting a piece of vinyl or cutting a lacquer, I should say? Yeah, it was, it was three months in. I kind of came in as a backup because we had another engineer there working in the, in the lacquer mastering side of the business and he was expecting a child. So part of, why I was there was to be there when he left for paternity leave so that I can keep the lathes running and operating and keep the cuts going. Because, I mean, we were so busy. I mean, we were cutting probably like two boxes of lacquers a week, which is quite a bit at the time. So we were running two eight-hour shifts for a long time. Wow. So yeah, about three months in, he had his kid. I showed up and I didn't know that he had had his kid until Pete showed up. And then Pete was like, well, looks like you're cutting records today. So the first two records I cut was a Iggy and the Stooges box set. 
And then directly after that, a King Tubby 10 inch box set. So those are my first two records. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's amazing. And how was that for you mentally? Were you shaking? Were you nervous about it? I was terrified. I mean, I was so nervous. I don't like fucking things up. Me, just as in general, I just have a lot of anxiety about these things. Like, I don't ever want anyone to be unhappy. I don't want anyone to have an issue with their record. So I really strive to just like be the best I can possibly be. And then it took me a long time to just understand that sometimes things are going to get screwed up. And it's less about being perfect all the time, more about being like able to find a way to fix things and find the path forward quickly. So that way it's not a big drawn out process. It's just, hey, whatever it happens and then we fix it. But yes, I was terrified when I was cutting those records because Iggy and the Stooges as a punk rock kid, I'm like, this is, it doesn't get much better than this. Like if I fuck this up, I'm going to be beside myself. So. Right. But put it into perspective, though. I mean, if you did fuck it up, obviously it costs money for these lacquers, but you just pick up another lacquer, start over. Start the process Obviously, over. it's the cutting head. You really don't want to mess up. Exactly. I mean, that's what took me a long time. I learned to let go of things because although my, my track record's really good, you know, you can't help but have some stinkers pull through and just be like, well... And that's way you have to learn. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of times the best learning experiences, at least that I've had, and I'm sure that many other people have had, is when you fuck something up. Yeah. Because you'll never do it again. You're just like, okay, well, that's never going to happen again. And the more of those that I can get out of my way in the beginning of my career, when people aren't paying as much attention to me, the better, because it's going to make me better off for the long run later in my career when I'm getting the bigger jobs, when I'm doing the bigger things. I'm going to know what I could get away with, what I can't get away with, how to get the best sounding cut or master I possibly can, because I've already put myself through that, screwing some things up here and there and learning from that process. What can mess a cutter head up? What is the thing that destroys a cutter head? So it takes a lot of effort if you know what you're doing <laughs> because there's a lot of fail safes set in place. So like on my system, I've cut on a lot of systems and I know we weren't going to talk about gear, but I'm going to talk about gear for a second. I've cut on many, many Neumann systems and also Scully Westrex systems. There's differences between both, but for the most part, what people are cutting on a majority of the time is going to be a Neumann system with SX74 cutter head or 68 cutter head, something like that. And each amplifier rack has a circuit breaker built into it. And the circuit breaker, what that does is it measures the amount of current that's being sent to the cutter head. And that current is drawn by, it's usually through high frequencies being pushed into the cutter head. So like an easy way to fry a cutter head is let's say the circuit breakers aren't calibrated properly or they're just not working. And then you send full scale 20 kilohertz to your cutter head that's going to toast it instantly because inside of the cutter head there's these coils and those coils are a really thin flat wound wire mm -hmm. sort of like you know like a guitar pickup or something like that they're enclosed in a in an airtight sort of seal so what happens is if you if you send that much current and you you draw that much heat you can actually melt the coils pretty quickly mm. and that'll render the cutter head inoperable there's a million other ways. I mean, glue joints on the torque tube is a big thing. 
some cutter heads have been repaired over the years because I mean every one of them's old. So some of the different types of epoxies people have used on these cutter heads have different lifespans and you know it's vibration at the torque tube. So over several years and several thousand hours of cutting, one of those links can come loose inside of the glue joint and then you start to have weird things happen where high frequencies dip or there's a million different ways to break them. But the way that is the scariest way and sort of the way that you really don't want to break them is by sending too much current to the cutter head. And they don't really make new record lathes anymore, do they? There's a guy trying to right now. I don't know how far he is along with it, but um, being a dude who's worked with a lot of lathe techs in my time cutting records and and really been in the trenches. Like I'm not very technical. I can't work on a lathe, but I've worked till 4 a.m. many, many, many nights refurbishing a lathe or bringing a lathe back online. Because I mean, just in my time, I've owned two lathes and then Pete had two lathes. And then I worked on several other lathes outside of Infrasonic and my own company when I was doing Townsend Mastering. And the amount of engineering, just the mechanical engineering and the money that they spent on R&D on these amplifiers and how to get a record to sound as good as they sound. That's a lot of money. At the time, that was probably at least a half million dollar piece of equipment. Hmm. Calculate it and figure it out. But back then, when they were selling them brand new, it's very expensive and very, very intricate and very complicated pieces a year. And there's a reason there's only a handful of techs who can even work on them nowadays. So do you, you work on a lathe most of the time, do you master other stuff not related to making vinyl? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. My specialty is I, I have a niche in vinyl because I've been doing it for so long. That's how I started learning to master records was first by cutting records. But I do a full digital mastering. We're full service here in, in Infrasonic LA. We'll do, we'll do everything for your streaming releases, your CD releases, all that stuff. And then we'll we'll take it all the way up to cutting a, a lacquer master for you. So we can do everything in-house. Okay. So you, at some point you had your own mastering company. Yeah. How does that fit into the timeline of all this? And what's the difference between having your own thing and then working for Infrasonic? Yeah. So the timeline, basically, I think I worked for Pete and Infrasonic. I was there from like late 2011 or early 2012. And I worked there all the way till about 2016, at which point I had to go. Pete was figuring out how he was going to make his move to Nashville. Mm -hmm. I wasn't ready to move to Nashville. So I wanted to, I mean, I'd spent so much time and effort doing what I was doing. So me and Pete just found that it would, it would be easier for us to part ways. So I, I split off and started my own mastering company and moved it down to Orange County where I was living at the time. And I did that from that point, from 2016, all the way up until just last year. And me and Pete had stayed friends and we just didn't really have a way to like find a way for us to work together again. Mm -hmm. And then the opportunity presented itself last year when I was looking to move back up here for some family reasons. Mm -hmm. So I was like, well, you know, I got a lathe and I want to work with other people. Like I've been alone in my cave for six years, so it'd be nice. <laughs> so you guys joined forces again. Yeah, so we're back. I'm back with Infrasonic now. I'm, I'm a mastering engineer for them. And then I, I help head up the uh, LA branch. So we have a studio here in LA now. How does the work get divvied up as it comes in? How do you all decide, does it go to Nashville? Does it go to LA? 
who's going to get it at each of those locations? A lot of times the way it kind of works out is that a lot of us have our own built-in clientele mm. that will ask for us specifically. So we're all kind of in charge of doing things on our own, but there is a community at Infrasonic where we do go out as a group or we'll have a whole Nashville hang and we'll go out and hang out with clients that we're working with or go to parties and try to meet people. And we're a very social group of people. We all go to shows. We all go out and get stuff done. So we're all chasing after our own work. But we also will sometimes, the best part about it being the way that it is with sort of the collective of mastering engineers is that we can all go after the work no matter what the scope is. And we have multiple locations. So we can keep timelines tight. We can work together and like whatever humongous amount of work comes down the road we can divvy it up internally. And a lot of times if people have no idea of who they want to work with or if they're coming in sort of cold and don't know much about Infrasonic and what we do or what different engineers specialize in, our manager Raylan does a really good job of having those clients that are coming in and just striking up a conversation. What is it? What kind of genre is it? What are you looking for? And then she'll pair that person up with the best engineer for the fit. And does the, the geographic location play into that? Yeah, definitely. Especially for things like vinyl. Here in LA, I'm I'm located centrally between Nipro Optics and RTI, who are two plating facilities that a lot of people use. So I'm able to turn lacquers a lot quicker here and get them into the plating baths a lot faster if we cut them here. I mean, it doesn't trim a whole lot off, but sometimes, you know, at least two to three days. Yeah. And that, that can make a, a big difference. Let's go back to when you were running your own facility. What were the pros and the cons of that? Well, the pros are that I make all of the money, uh, (laughs) (laughs) but I also have all the responsibility. And that's about as easy as I can make that. It's really what it comes down to. You have bills stacking up. You got to make sure that you're out there getting the money to keep paying your bills. And and it's cool. Like I I had a, a lot of help. So I had someone who was willing to give me a space for not very much money and help me purchase my equipment where I I would have otherwise not been able to, to start my own business. So I had a great amount of help doing what I needed to do. And that was probably the only way I could have done it. And then going back to Infrasonic was nice because I could sort of offload some of those responsibilities and those, those things. And I can just work and focus on music only instead of being like, uh, here's my business brain. And then here's my mastering brain. And then I have to do this half the day and this half the day. And then I'm getting pulled over here now. And okay, well, now I got to get back into the job. So it kind of just trims everything down, makes it a nice, neat little package where I can just come into the studio, focus on music. I don't have to worry about billing. I don't have to worry about chasing clients or asking people, did you pay your bill yet or any of that stuff. So all the responsibilities get offloaded and all I have to do is focus on music, which I think helps me to make a a way better product. That's great. I mean, to know that somebody's got billing, somebody's taking care of the overall expenses of both locations. That's, it's a brilliant thing in many respects. Yeah. When you were on your own, how did you find surviving financially? Oh man, it's tough. It's just like anybody who, who starts their own small business. Some months are fucking awesome. You get like a, several thousand dollar a month where you're like, holy crap, I've never made this money in my whole life. And then the next month is famine. You're like, ah, 
when am I going to get the next gig? And then it sort of sets you up with this mentality of I'd be feasting for like a month. I'm just like job, 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 job. And then I get to the end of that job and I'd be like, oh no, I don't have any other jobs lined up. What the, uh, uh, and then you start stressing out. And then next thing you know, the jobs start coming in, but you're always on edge. You're always thinking like, oh, I got to get the next job. I got to focus on the next job. I can't take any time off because what if a job happens? Then I'm not here and then I lose the job and then that person never comes back. Oh my God, what am I doing? So it's like just a, a little peek into the internal struggle when you're doing your own business like that. It's just always, it's a lot of stress, a lot of pressure to try and do well and keep the jobs coming in. Do you find that it's a slightly different story with being with Infrasonic? Does it take a little bit of the edge off? Yeah, definitely. We all work together and you got people back. Like I got Raylan backing me up on all my gigs. So if I have someone send me an inquiry and I'm in the middle of a mastering project, you know, I can instantly forward that email to Raylan and she can handle that client immediately. Whereas I would have had to stop mastering and I would have been like, okay, well now I got to write this email and maybe I get sucked in like an hour conversation with this person and then my day's gone. For me, it's, it, it, it makes a huge difference. Like I don't have to worry about, I've just consolidated my time to mastering and I've been able to make things very streamlined. So that way I can do more work. I can focus on the task at hand, which is mastering. And then I can offload all the other things onto Raylan, who does a really good job helping all of us here. And not to get intrusive into the inner workings of how the business works, but essentially, I assume everybody's expected to tow their weight and they have to put in time and and work with clients and and try to cultivate clients as well. Yep. And you can't just sit back and do nothing and expect work to be handed to you. Yeah, exactly. We all carry our own weight and we all are out there hustling. We all share a manager, Raylan. She's awesome. But at the end of the day, we're expected to go after our own work, bring our own clients, cultivate these relationships with people to try to keep work coming in. And and there's incentives. I mean, we, we all have incentives of like, okay, none of us have to worry about the overhead of the place. All we have to worry about is getting the jobs done. And if we, if we reach certain goals, we get these incentive situations where we're like, okay, well, like this month, I want to try and make a gazillion dollars because I'll make more money that way. So. <laughs> right. It's a great system. A lot of teamwork involved and great to have that common brand of Infrasonic. Yeah. You know, and I know Pete has worked very, very diligently to ensure that that name is synonymous with quality work. Yeah. Yeah. And it's great. I mean, it's a really tight knit group of people. We've all worked together. I've been working with Pete since, gosh, I mean, he must have only been in that Echo Park facility for like maybe eight months. So I, I've been with him since before the Grammys. So we all have this common bond and we're, we're all just working on this to make it as successful as possible. And we all feel like we have some sort of stake in the business. It's great. It's been curated. Yeah. We try to make sure that the people we bring on are meaningful and bringing something to the team and, and we all work together well. And it's awesome. It just keeps morale up and keeps us all stoked. Random question for you. Do supply chain issues affect vinyl cutting? Yeah, absolutely. Or lacquer cutting. I keep going. I keep, just so I'm clear, it's lacquer you're cutting. Yes. Right. So the there's two versions of mastering for vinyl. There's DMM and then there's lacquer. So 
DMM is direct metal mastering. It's a process by which they cut directly into a copper disc on a lathe that is outfitted to do that, where things have been been reinforced and EQ curves are a little different. And that can be a great way of doing stuff because you eliminate one step in plating. So a lot of people love it because you're eliminating that step. It's cheaper, but it's also retaining some sort of audiophile quality of not making multiple replications. Whereas lacquer is the more traditional sound that everyone's used to. If you go to any dollar store bin and you pull out a record, nine times out of 10, it's going to be a a lacquer cut record. And that's what people are just used to hearing sonically. It's it's two different sound qualities. Like lacquer is is an aluminum disc and it has a really thin layer of nitrocellulose lacquer coating the entire top of the disc. So the EQ is a little bit different and the, the cutter head isn't as reinforced. I don't know if any of that plays into it. I feel like it's got to, but you end up getting a much more full low end. I think the stereo width is much more true to the master when you're cutting. Sort of the only downside to it, in my opinion, is is that you can have this phenomenon called pre-echo happen more often, mm-hmm. where you hear the, the beginning of the record come in a split second before the actual audio comes in. And that happens because, I mean, there's multiple ways that it can happen, but basically that's when grooves are either settling into each other or cut into each other just a little bit off the top. And you sort of hear how the, the groove after the silent groove has pressed into the silent groove that had just been cut. Got so it, it kind of leaves a ghost image of what's happening. So that's what you hear, that little like ghost sound of the record starting right before it actually starts. So does it, with with these two formats, these two ways of, of cutting DMM and lacquer, back to the supply chain question, are those affected by supply chain issues? Yeah, so lacquer, I would say, well, DMM, there's very few DMM lathes in the world. Mm-hmm. Most of them are owned by GZ in the Czech Republic. And then the only ones in America that I know of personally are actually owned by Scientology. So, oh, <laughs> but unless copper is gone, they face less supply chain issues because people can plate a copper master and keep making those. Whereas lacquer, I mean, oh God, I forget what year it was, maybe 2018 or 2019, Apollo Masters in Banning, California burnt down. That's right. I remember that. That was half of the world's supply of lacquer when they burnt down. So now it's the entire weight of the industry for lacquer is resting solely on MDC in Japan. So they've done a really good job. I mean, at the beginning, it was really tough. And I had been lucky enough to have hopped ship from Apollo and made the transfer over to MDC before the banning fire happened. So I wasn't as affected as some people were where they literally could not get lacquer. Mm. But since I had been ordering from them prior to that, consistently, I had priority. So I could I could order lacquers. I used to order 50 to 100 lacquers at a time. And when that Apollo fire happened, I was lucky to get 25 lacquers every other month. Ooh. So it really was a big hit. I mean, people were begging to get lacquers and there just wasn't enough to go around. So since then, luckily, they've ramped up production. I don't know what they've done, if they've made more facilities or what's going on, but they've been able to meet the demand of, of everyone that I know personally. I'm able to get as many lacquers as I need at any given time. And Apollo, is did that just burn to the ground? Yeah, it's gone. Nothing there left. Is the business gone? 
that's a good question. I've heard rumblings and rumors about it not being totally gone and them trying to figure out some other way of opening up again and do lacquers again. But hmm. beyond it being a rumor or something I've heard in passing from other people, like, I really don't know. I've heard a lot of things. Like, I've heard that people are trying to make lacquers overseas, but none of this stuff has come to fruition. I, I haven't seen anybody actually make a new lacquer. And the material that is in lacquer, isn't it highly flammable anyway? Oh, yeah. It's super caustic, flammable, like definitely going to give you cancer. <laughs> uh, you know, Not great for the environment. No, no. I mean, vinyl records are not good for the environment in general. Right, right. Unfortunately, I mean, people are trying to change that. I don't know if this how true this is, but from a source that is very old and very knowledgeable in vinyl, I think lead used to be used in vinyl records, and that was what helped make them quieter. I don't know how true that is, but uh, if that's the case, I mean, it just goes to show you, like, <laughs> records, they're crazy. I mean, wow. you know, it's a manufacturing process, and anytime you manufacture something, you're probably going to pollute the environment a little bit. Yeah, I was going to say. Well, I really appreciate you making time for me today. It's great to talk to you. We'll meet in person at some point. I'm sure we yeah. will. But I will put a link in the show notes to your bio on the Infrasonic cool. website. And for the audience, just because I happen to have interviewed so many people at Infrasonic, I will put a link in the show notes to every one of those interviews. You'll get the entire Infrasonic gang. Maybe not. Oh, yeah. I don't know if I'm missing anybody yet, but I, I need to check with Pete and see if who else is over there that I need to interview. Well, great to meet you. Like I said, lovely to talk to you. And thanks for the info about vinyl. I'm sure my audience is happy to hear the information and get a little more educated on the topic. Sure. Yeah. No, thanks for having me, man. It's awesome. Awesome. You take care. You too. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Nick Townsend here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. I want to remind you to download the 15 simple tips to help you survive as an audio professional. These are bits of wisdom pulled from interviews from Andrew Sheps, Eric Valentine, Steve Albini, and Jack and Dino. You can get it at workingclassaudio.com slash 15tips. That's right. I want to thank my crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow in the editing, Cliff Truesdell in the Working Class Audio theme song, and the magical voice of Chuck Smith. Connect with me on LinkedIn, and until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like 
and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. (laughs) 